Welcome to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. Q is about conversation. If we're really concerned about ending poverty, we've got to be more concerned about creating justice. Our cultural products as Christians need to both defy and resonate with the culture. And God's doing amazing things. His church is expanding. His church is growing. It's not what's the purpose of my life. It's what is the purpose that's been assigned. Stay curious. Think well. Advance good. This is Q. Welcome to another edition of the Q Podcast. This is our sixth in a series of seven. If this is the first time you're listening to the Q Podcast, I want to invite you to go back to the beginning of this series with uh, episode one where we began talking about this idea of what does it mean for the church? What does it mean for Christians to be faithful in our time? What are some of the practices that have always been true of the church when we've had to ask the question, what does it mean to show up in a culture? What does it mean to be faithful? What does it mean to be a countercultural presence, advancing the common good and inviting others into it? And so this series of conversations is helping us move deeper into that, explore some of this. For many, it's the first time hearing this kind of discussion. And we think it's important, particularly in the moment we find ourselves in for the church in Western culture, where there are challenges, where the church is experiencing a shift and having to ask some deeper questions that we didn't have to ask when things were a little more comfortable. But now as we see that our ideas are being challenged, as we see that the public square is changing, we're forced to reconsider what does faithfulness look like? Well, today we're going to talk about the fifth practice, and it's the practice of extending hospitality, something the church has been great at throughout the ages. We can go back to the first century church. We can go back to Acts 2, where we see the church first emerge, and this was something the church always got right. It was always brilliant at extending hospitality, welcoming strangers, nurturing friendships, building community. It has always been the practice of the church to be that place where people could come and seek rest when they were restless, to seek welcome when they felt left out from any other place. But are we that place today? Are, are we the place where people look when they're actually weary, when they're in need, when they're seeking acceptance because they've received rejection everywhere else? I think if we're being honest, we know that's not necessarily the case in many of our communities. And so what will it take for us to Reimagine hospitality. What will it mean to think about community? How do we live alongside and serve and nurture one another and also live alongside those with which we maybe have disagreement? As we've done throughout this series, we're going to get to hear from Dr. Greg Thompson, and Greg brings to us theology and a history of understanding how cultures change and how they're shaped, the experience of being a pastor of a congregation uh, in a local community for many, many years, and really helping us see through a lens the opportunity that we have to recover and rediscover what it's meant to be a faithful church in any generation. So let's listen now as we start to consider what does it mean to practice this idea of hospitality and loving others well. How do we love? How do we love? Now, this is a question about community, about what it means to live with people in both intimacy and in delight. Now, now, this is very important that we answer this question both for ourselves and for our neighbors, for ourselves, because you know this community is at the heart of Christian calling. We serve a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the very model and anchor of our community. And it's only as we take community seriously that we can bear witness to this triune community. But it's important that we also think about this for our neighbors. 
Because we share an age with them that is actually desperate for true community. An age in which we have more capacity to connect to other human beings than we have ever had before. And yet, we are born into fractured homes. We live in spaces between community. We wander around in loneliness. And many, many millions of people die alone. We live in an epidemic of loneliness. And in response to this, in our own time, there there are these two models of community, which are essentially parodies of community that have emerged. And the Christian church needs to both see them and seek to overcome them in its life. Now, the first is what you might call an individualist approach to community. This may sound like a contradiction in terms, but it isn't. It's real, and you see it every day. And now, here's what happens. In this approach, community is understood fundamentally as an avenue of self-actualization. The community is to be a place whose primary goal is to secure my identity and to meet my needs and to realize my hopes. It is, in other words, not about others, but about the self. And And you see this, many of you have done this, I have done this, and we see this in churches all the time. The second parody that we need to understand is what might be called the tribal approach to community, the tribal approach to community. Now, in this community, in this vision of community, that is, community is fundamentally about those who are like us. Community is a place where we can gather with those who are like us, with our race or our class or our nation or our social and political and cultural perspective. This tribal approach to community, it can feel like community as long as you're on the inside. And that's the problem. Because in the tribal approach to community, those who are like us are in, but those who are not like us are out. This tribal identity has been the occasion of so much violence, so much destruction in our own culture and in our own lives. And while it feels like community, it actually corrupts and destroys community. And you know that. And so our age is is one that that desperately needs a people who have a robust answer to the question of community, of, of how it is that we're supposed to love as human beings. And the Christian church is supposed to, to be that answer. Now, how are we going to do that? How, how are we to love? And there are lots of ways that we could talk about this, but there are two things that I think the Christian church has to do if it's going to answer effectively the question of how we love. The first is this. We have to reestablish households as schools of love. We have to reestablish our households as schools of love because love is learned. And if we are going to learn it, we're going to have to devote ourselves to living in these communities, these households, and living and learning in what St. Bernard called schools of love. That's his phrase. Now, these can be households with families. They can be households with friends. They can be households of both. But the Christian church needs to establish households in every city of this world where human beings are taught to love again, where we are daily living out the practices of mind, of heart, of body, of speech. We have to reestablish the household, not simply as a refuge from the world, but as a school of love. Because only when we do this, when we understand that we learn love in our households, can we overcome the individualism that is our besetting sin. The household is the answer to the individualist impulse. But secondly, we have to reprioritize hospitality as the extension of love. Because the love that we have is not just for ourselves. This love that we grow, it's for our neighbors. And because of this, the work of the Christian church in this world is not the work of excluding our neighbors, but in embracing them through the work of hospitality. I want you to think about how powerful this is in this age. Think about your open door. Think about your warm welcome. Think about the holiness of pulling up that extra chair. Setting out that extra plate, filling that glass one more time, going and finding those linens and put them on the bed. That is holy. 
that is holy. This is the work of hospitality. And I cannot imagine a more powerful protest against the tribal impulse of our own age than that. Welcoming those who are different than we are into our households and expressing love to them. And so we have to give ourselves to this work of hospitality. Because it's only as we do this that we can gather up the love that's extended to us by God and cultivate us, cultivated in us in our households and extend it to our neighbors. I love the way you start to approach this as we jump into this discussion about community. How do we really love our neighbors well, Greg? Because you start almost like a missiologist with this idea that people are feeling something. Something's missing in their life. Something's missing in their experience as a human being. And and oftentimes we forget that the church could be the one offering answers, offering a different way for people to think about what it means to be loved and to be invited in and to be accepted um, and to experience connection. And, and you, you reference so much of what I know the people listening experience in our own daily lives. We're, we're so connected with technology, whether it's Facebook and Instagram and so many other ways in which we feel like we have connection. And yet the epidemic of loneliness is just absolutely rampant. We, we are lonely. People are isolated from one another. We hide from one another. Part of that has to do with our families. Part of that has to do with the, the order, way we order our time. Part of that has to do with the infrastructure of our cities <laughs> and our neighborhoods. We're, we're not connected to, to human beings. And so people, people do have a profound sense of being detached from one another and of wanting to be attached. And then, of course, that's because so many of our relationships are mediated through technology, which, which has a kind of barriering quality to keep us from one another, even as we try to connect. I do think people are profoundly lonely and, and they know that they, they long for something else. It only takes an experience where you visit uh, a different culture sometimes. I know for me, the first time I experienced this was going to Rwanda and seeing these communities and villages of life and people so happy, no, no technology, the church enfolded and enmeshed into the community, people living life right alongside one another, serving one another well. And it's one of those things where you would logically think, hey, our world's more developed, we're more educated, we're more informed, technology should assist us in doing a better job at this. And then you look back and go, we've gotten worse. We don't know how to experience what people who have much simpler lives so easily experience. Well, when you when you look comparatively at places like what you've just mentioned and, and other things, I think you do see that we have a, we're impoverished with respect to friendship, that we don't know how to find each other, that we don't have, uh, again, civic infrastructures or even technological interfaces that allow us to be human with one another. And we don't have the space or the time. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So uh, that's, that's a huge problem. So there's a, there are a lot of things in this culture from the individualist impulse to the structure of our whole economy and to the structure of our cities that mitigate against intimacy. And that's important to recognize. It's pretty overwhelming, though. I mean, because you're right. You look at the margin in our own life. Do, do I have time to provide hospitality to my neighbors the way I intuitively know I'm supposed to as a Christian? But when I look at my calendar, look at my schedule, look at what I've deemed important, and maybe that's been because I've bought into some of the idols of our age and just gone right along with it to where you go, man, this feels like I'd have to radically reorient my life. And yet that's exactly what we're saying. That's exactly what we're saying. <laughs> the idea is if the word is going to become flesh, if we are going to inhabit this world, we're going to have to do it in a different way. Yeah, like it's not working. And, and you point out these two models. And I, I love this about this process and this discussion is 
we're not just talking about some theory or some concept. You, you actually point out the flawed concepts that we've bought into. And in this case, as it relates to this idea of community, the individualistic approach where we're only part of community so that we feel better about who we are. And then the other one where we create tribes of people just like us. And I mean, isn't that true today where we pretty much have echo chambers? We get along with the people that think like us, look like us, talk like us, act like us. And we have no room for any other person or any other experience. And, and yet we're coming up empty and people are feeling lonely. That's right. You know, there's a funny example of that in uh, articles that have been out recently about how your Facebook page begins to take on your own personality, you know, <laughs> right. whether it's your red state or blue state, where you really are living in this, this echo chamber of, of the tribe. And the way that creates profound barriers to real intimacy, real friendship across difference, it has incredibly powerful implications for how we even understand our whole social order. Well, and you mentioned this, but that can lead to violence. I mean, this isn't just a practice that we can just kind of ignore and say, oh, it just is the way it is. No, that sort of separation, the inability to see the others we talked about in the last episode and to see the image of God in other people uh, that's critical to this, it can really lead to us starting to label people, want them out of our communities, uh, and it can lead to violence. And we've seen that in cultures and other countries, and we've even seen it in this country. Of course we have. I mean, it doesn't, it's not just that it can lead to violence, it's that it inevitably does lead to violence. Whether that violence is rhetorical, where the kind of jokes that we tell about people in the other tribe, or whether it becomes, becomes physical or economic, this society right now, whether it's political tribes or racial tribes or regional tribes or even religious tribes, is profoundly polarized because of this, this tribalist account of, of community. And it's in these kind of moments. I mean, I get excited, Greg, thinking about the mission opportunity because it's almost so dire and, and the opportunity so great because you realize people are hurting. There's pain. People are recognizing that the answers and the ways in which they've tried to solve these problems aren't working. And you go, wow, we, we might actually have something to offer. People are actually getting hungrier every day for a solution. And, and they wouldn't right now self-identify and say, hey, I think the church could bring it. I mean, many of them have yeah. rejected the church and said, we don't care what the church has to say about this, but you and I sitting here, we know years down the road, this is something important that we could contribute to the broader conversation in our cities and our neighborhoods. And, and I want to focus in on these solutions. You talk about this idea of reestablishing households. Now, households, that would not be a term I know I've heard a lot about in the church. I've heard some references to scripture about a household of faith. But you really dig into households. This is something you've thought a lot about, studied about. I've heard you actually teach in-depth sermons on this whole idea of households. Will you just describe to us how a household actually would function? Yeah. So one of the interesting things in American Christianity of the 20th century is that the nuclear family has become the organizing point for people thinking about uh, the faith. And I, I really think that that's a mistake. Because in the Bible, the emphasis really is on the household, where it may include a nuclear family, but it would include men living together. There are these households of women living together. It's multi-generational. And I think part of what I'm saying is that there need to be places where people are living together, whether it's a family or whether it's friends, as I said in the talk, where they are, they are living together for the purposes of learning how to love, whether you're a group of college women or college guys living together or whether you've graduated and you all are moving to some city and you decide we're going to live together in this house or in this apartment so that we can learn the ways of love together. Being deliberate about where you live and with whom you live and for what purpose, this is a very important thing. And this is why, you know, when you look in the Old Testament, 
and you see these families, in many ways, people that live together, it was for the purpose of cultivating love of God and love of neighbor. You know, that's how it worked. And you can think about Deuteronomy 6 and saying, this is how you should impress this on one another as you dwell together. That's what I think the essence of a household should be. You think of monastic communities, you think historically of convents, we've seen it lived out in monasteries where communal life has just been part of the practice of the church, but oftentimes it is in those ways where we go, oh, that's kind of odd and weird, you know, the men are going to commit their life to this, the women are committing their life to this in the convent, but we don't think about that in 21st century life, like, oh, that's that's for all of us, because like you said, the nuclear family which I don't think you're saying the nuclear family is bad. It's certainly no, a key, I have, a I have key a large to one. society. <laughs> right. um, and yet when that becomes the idol and the only thing our churches serve, then we start to create this vacuum where people go, I'm not part of a nuclear family. I don't have a good relationship with my parents. I'm not, I'm not married. I might not ever be married. What am I supposed to do? That's right. That's right. And I think whether you're thinking about monastic communities or whether you're thinking about, you know, the academies during the Reformation where all these people would come and they would stay in cities uh, and live and, and work together, or whether you're thinking, like I said, just about people moving to the same town uh, or having friends move in with them or just even the nuclear family seeing itself as a part of the larger household of faith. We, the point is that where we live and with whom we live needs to be purposeful. It needs to be about the cultivation of communities of love, and I think we, we can be more deliberate about that. You described households as being schools of love. How would a household be that for somebody? Well, that's as I said, that's, that's Bernard of Clairvaux's language, and the idea was that all the practices, whether they're meals or whether they're reading or whether they're giving people places to rest or how you mediate conflict or how you attend to one another and you're hurt, the whole point of that is to form people into lovers of God and of one another. This is how people learn. And it's multi-generational, right? Of it's, it's bringing people together who may not normally rub shoulders or be in the same environment and that God's using all of that to shape us into the person he wants us to be. It forces us to serve the other, forces us outside of our selfish impulses. Uh, and you described hospitality. And, and I think another example of a very practical thing, any Christian listening to this could really consider over the next many years of your life, one of the most hospitable things you can do is invite your neighbors over into your home for dinner, cook a meal for them, uh, experience a beginning of a friendship or nurture old existing friendships. But many people, because of sort of the way life works, don't have time for it. We don't have margin for it. Why is hospitality so critical in how the faith has moved forward historically throughout history? Well, our faith is, is one that is premised on the assumption that while we were yet strangers and enemies, Jesus came and prepared a meal for us. The meal was himself and welcomed us into his life uh, and says, I've, I've prepared a place for you. Like, this is what I've, what I've done. And that the way that we tell that story is through that action, right? And so I think part of what I think you, you've used in the language of time, we don't have time. I think that's really important. Because that's in some ways exactly what's going on in the great, in the, in the Good Samaritan story. The two very busy religious leaders, they had a pl- they had somewhere to be, right? They just didn't have time for this thing. And Jesus says, this, this one though is the one that was the neighbor. This one that said, you know, 
I may or may not have time, but that's not really the point. I have love. That's the point. And I'm going to figure out how to do that within this framework. Now, I, I do want to say that one of the things about hospitality is it's not just a swinging door. It is, as Edith Schaefer said, doors also that have a hinges and a lock because in order to be able to give yourself to someone, you have to have healthy boundaries. You have to know what you have to give and what you don't. And I think that's one of the reasons we're not hospitable is because we don't, we lack the self-knowledge to know the kind of resources that we have and that we don't. And we don't plan. We don't, we don't, we don't plan and say we're going to host, we're going to care for, we're going to invite in. I think we need to cultivate that skill. You know, more than ever, I've met so many Christians today as they're talking about the home they're going to purchase or the place they're constructing or the apartment that they're about to to lease is that there's a thought towards the extra room. There's a thought towards saying, I want to have space for people to show up, to just live with us uh, for a season, a small period of time. You see it then translated to a significant movement amongst foster care and adoption and seeing the church really rise to the occasion in several places where they're doing this, that, that would all be forms of hospitality, wouldn't it? Absolutely. And I think one of the things that churches can do is encourage the gift of hospitality in their people and enable them to do that. A lot of people feel like we can't be hospital. We don't have means. We don't know exactly how. I think churches need to do more instruction on here's what hospitality is. Here's what it isn't. Here's when you open the door. Here's when you close the door. Here's how you support and care for people. Here's when you when you need to stop. And I, I frankly, I think a lot of church local mission budgets could be really well used subsidizing the hospitality of their people. Yeah, <laughs> right. I mean, and, you know, turn in your turn in your receipt from the meal you just cooked for your neighbors, and we'll reimburse you. Or let us help you with your utility bill for the person that's living with you. I mean, in those kinds of ways, missions budget could be subsidizing all kinds of hospitality. I absolutely think that's right. And wouldn't you say the mission of the church in our age, the age of contradiction, that the way it's going to go forward, probably one of the most practical ways people are going to hear about the love of God, experience it, would be through this practice of hospitality? There is in my mind no question about that. This is in an age where people are fractured from one another, where they are lonely, where they are migratory, and where they, a lot of people just are not known. The opportunity to welcome somebody, to open them up and to greet them as Christ, just as we talked about in the very first part of this talk, to greet them as Christ, it's, it's incredibly powerful. And I know a lot of people have some social anxiety about that, you know, like, oh, I don't, I don't know them. I don't want to invite them over for dinner because what if they don't want to come and what if they don't want to engage and, and, and yet... People who've actually done this and experienced it go, people love that I invited them over for dinner. They love that I was the first to initiate. And there's so much, quote unquote, social anxiety in the world today. Again, it'll be countercultural for us to reach out, to take the first step. It requires a bit of boldness. It requires some courage, maybe in some cases. But to just take that step, trust God, trust the Spirit to use those kinds of actions to actually lead people to say yes and to be a part of your community and we might not ever know what God's going to do through just that seed that you've been able to plant. Of all the practices we've been talking about throughout this series, I think understanding hospitality, learning how to create households in our communities. This is where it starts to really get practical for all of us to understand how does these expressions of love show up? What does it mean to truly love your neighbor? It may mean cooking a meal. It may mean showing up and serving them. It may mean giving them something 
that they need that you have. And, and it means providing access to people who might not have otherwise had access to things. It means having margin in our schedules to be able to take the time and to, in a moment that we hadn't even prepared or planned for, to show up in somebody's life at their moment of need. These are not things you can always just change in one day. It takes time. It takes a heart that's starting to turn towards the nature of God and to understand who we are called to be and what it will mean for us to show up on mission in the world. I realize it's a bit countercultural from what maybe we've learned and maybe we've taught ourselves about mission having to do with a to-do list and getting a lot of things done and constant motion and constant service to God. And yet part of what we're describing here is the initiative to slow down, to actually prioritize in your calendar margin and space. And so I join you in that journey. This is something that's convicting to me. It's convicting in my own family, in our own life. How do we have the time? How can we create more time? How can we structure our life in such a way that we can be those kinds of neighbors. We can be that kind of people. There's there's no question people are longing for it. There's no question people are hungry for it. And so our encouragement to you from Q and to all of us who are trying to live this out and to practice faithfulness, let's encourage one another. Let's practice this. Let's let this become a part of who we are. Let's do our best to love well those who are around us and whoever God's put in our path. Let's not be the religious leaders that walk by because we're so busy, but those who prioritize the love of neighbor as much as we prioritize the love of our own selves. We're going to continue on in this discussion. I hope you'll join us for the next episode where we wrap up this series and we'll talk about the sixth practice, which is what does this mean for us to start to live this out vocationally? How do we reimagine our vocation? How do we start to order our work towards the common good? This is where this starts to show up in these seven channels of culture. No matter what industry or talent God's given you, there is an expression of love that can play itself out in that world. It's going to be fun to talk to Greg about what would that look like? How does it look? What are some examples and stories of people that we see playing this out? I hope you'll invite your friends, family members, those who you have conversations with about what does it look like to be the church today? What does it mean for us to be on mission? And join with us and let's continue forward as we wrap up this series on the next episode. I look forward to being with you then. This show is made possible in partnership with Faith Radio and Northwestern Media. Thank you for listening to the Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons podcast. These conversations are available because of listener support. You can make your gift now at MyFaithRadio.com. To avoid missing future editions of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons, subscribe to the podcast today at iTunes or on your podcast player. And thank you for sharing this audio link with a friend and growing the impact of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons.